Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're joined by the talented makeup artist, cancer survivor, and Be The Match board ambassador, Jared Lipscomb. At the age of 24, working two jobs and saving as much as he could, he moved across the country to Los Angeles. There, working at a restaurant, he met some other creatives that were impressed with his makeup skills when he showed up for work in drag for Halloween. He was encouraged to expand his makeup work beyond weddings and proms. Around the same time, he was motivated to get involved with an organization helping homeless youth. There, a chance meeting led to him working with some young reality TV stars. As his career has taken off, he observed that something was wrong with his body that led to a cancer diagnosis that would change everything. Let's hear Jared's story. We are really excited today to be joined with Jared Lipscomb. Jared is a makeup artist extraordinaire, cancer survivor, humanitarian, and philanthropist. Welcome, Jared. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing today? Uh, You know, I'm doing good. I had a doctor's appointment and um, things are looking pretty good for me. So I am feeling good today. That's great news. That's wonderful news. Jared, we're going to talk about uh, your childhood, some life stuff. Just to give everybody just a heads up that, so Jared, you had a transplant done 36 weeks ago? Oh gosh, I don't know the weeks, but I know it happened in, at the beginning of or March in 2020. So gosh, I don't even know how many weeks it is, but it's about eight months ago. And oh, I had a bone marrow transplant. A bone marrow transplant. And, mm-hmm. and as of today, you are in remission? Correct. Yes, I am in remission. And uh, obviously it's a, you know, a rocky road and I got to stay in remission and I still take some chemo pills to keep me there. But all signs are pointing to a positive outcome. Of course, it's a you know five year before you're in the clear kind of experience. So I am still very diligent and still in the recovery process, technically speaking. But um, things are going good. Awesome. We're, we're so happy for that. And uh, we're just really glad that you were able to make some time to come chat with us today and just learn more about, about you and, and all the wonderful things you, you've done in your life and you continue to do today. And um, with the last couple of years, I've been like also as well with, with your diagnosis and where you are today. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up kind of all over the South when I was younger, but we kind of settled, my family and I settled in Florida, in kind of like central Florida, close to the beach, but also close to Orlando. And, you know, that's kind of where I came of age, went to high school, college, et cetera, until I moved to Los Angeles eight years ago. What was, uh, what was your family like life down there? I mean, we have a really tight-knit family. It's my, uh, of course, mom and dad, brother and sister, and then some you know, extended family that also lived in the same neighborhood. So we're all really tight, really close family, very supportive family. And I mean, my dad is an Episcopalian priest. So we definitely grew up with like a religious upbringing, but it's been, um, but they've, they're very accepting and they've kind of grown with the times. So it's been actually very lovely. And um, I'm very happy and lucky and realize how lucky I am to have such a close, close knit family. Was there an actual coming out process for you then? Or was that not really part of your story? Um, I did come out at around 15 years old, maybe 15 going on 16, somewhere in that time frame. It wasn't nearly uh, as dramatic of a, you know, like a sit down, like I have something to say because I feel like I've always kind of expressed myself, um, even at a young age, through 
you know, dressing up and what my interests were, I don't think it was a shock to say the least to anybody, (laughs) but I still did officially come out to them just to, you know, be sure that the air was clear uh, and that we were all on the same page. But it definitely wasn't, you know, a shocking moment for anybody. (laughs) So Jared, how was, um, like growing up, so you grew up in in Florida, sounds like a pretty like liberal family, sort of like normal kind of childhood what was like school like for you uh your friend group like what was uh what did that look like for you growing up yeah so before we moved to florida we were in a small town for a few years like for some middle school and a little bit of high school before we really settled down and life there was really tough because it was very small very isolated kind of like midwest slash southern kind of on the cusp you know and Mm -hmm. it was um really difficult. And then just like with bullies and people not understanding. And I mean, it was a town of 800 and the school was K through 12. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine I was not only the only gay person in the school and I wasn't out at this time, but I was, again, it was very obvious that I was, you know, gay and like different than, than the typical air quotes boy. And, Mm -hmm. um, but I was also the only, like there was no black people in the school. There was no people, any person of color. There was, there wasn't even any Gothic kids in the school. I mean, there was no (laughs) diversity um, in any capacity uh, aside from me. So that was very tough. So when we moved to Florida, it was actually quite liberating because even though it was still a conservative, uh, smaller town, it was, I mean, my high school, I went through, I'm a, kindergarten through 12th grade school of 800 or of a hundred people to a school of 2000 people. And so all of a sudden I found that there was a drama department and that there was Mm -hmm. an, there were openly gay kids who, you know, accepted me with open arms and they were popular. And so to Mm -hmm. me, that was like, I had never heard of such a thing. And so I, um, I mean, I do like like drama class and stuff. I'm not like passionate about it or anything. It's not like my career path, but it definitely was my my way into finding kind of a niche and a home within this high school. And so I was quickly mm. accepted by the gay kids who did, you know, and gay and straight kids who did drama and choir and all of that world. And I adapted really quickly to that and really enjoyed meeting people who were so confident in themselves and so openly gay and so accepting. And that's what kind of gave me the push at 15 or 16 to be like, you know, it's okay to just like finally say it, like, you know, Mm -hmm. like say it out loud and admit it and accept it and tell people. And so I'm really grateful for the friends that I met when I was in high school to kind of give me that push. And from then on, it was, (laughs) it was a done deal. And I was pretty much confident from that moment (laughs) on. So... It's interesting when we've talked to people before that have had maybe they were like a magnet school or something for the arts or where a school where it celebrates um, everyone's talents and gifts, just how that experience can be completely different from somebody else's experience where they didn't, you know, get to really explore that in a, in a safe way where it was celebrated. And I just, it, it just sounds like it was a wonderful experience for you all in all. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like a, a night and day experience starting middle school and high school in that small town. But switching to Florida really was like, whoa, the yin and the yang of it. And so it was really ended up being a positive experience. That's awesome. Oh, I'm glad you had that experience. So then, you know, we we know that you're a really talented makeup artist. Is that when you really first started dibbling and dabbling with makeup or or was that really not yet where you were applying Um, Well, I've always been artistic. So I mean, even as young as like, 
seven, eight years old, I was drawing pictures of like Catwoman and Poison Ivy. I loved superheroes. Mm -hmm. And so I was like drawing their faces. So I feel like that's really what got me started. If I really look back, like, and really think of like the, the pathway to leading towards it. So I started drawing, like I was obsessed with drawing like Catwoman's face and Poison Ivy's face from the Batman comics and stuff in the Mm -hmm. Batman movies. And then obviously you go to school and you're like cool and whatever. And like, you don't really, you know, do that kind of stuff anymore. And then, but when I got back into theater, I was like, oh, like we're doing makeup for shows and like putting on makeup. And then that kind of led me into exploring more makeup. And then by the time I graduated high school and was, um, in between college and like making college friends and like, you know, doing all that stuff in Orlando, I started to experiment with drag that's kind of what really got me into makeup was starting to experiment with drag and stuff. How did that happen? What was that process like when all of us, like, did you have friends that did drag or was it like something that you, you were like really drawn to from a performance standpoint or was it the makeup that drew you in? You know, I had one, so I started to work at Disney World as my summer job because I lived in Florida close by and that was kind of like the cliche summer job everyone got in between high school and college. So I went there and I made this friend who was, they have like this really great international college program and he was British and he was in an art school in Edinburgh and was doing the same thing coming for the summer to um, experience American life and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And he really was like so artistic and he loved to uh, film things and he was really creative and we kind of just like we were both obsessed with pop culture because you know that was like the heyday of pop culture with like paparazzi and you know britney spears and Lindsay lohan and all Mm. of those those girls and Mm -hmm. we started to do kind of like spoofs of that before you know before it became a little bit more tragic but um we started to do spoofs (laughs) of that and so i was his for a lack of better word, his muse. And so he would Uh. direct me. And also I was the only one who had the Southern accent down pat because (laughs) I was able to do the the Britney Southern drawl because Uh um, (laughs) everyone we hung out with were international college students. So we kind of started to play around with that and he would film and we would do silly videos. And you know, this was pre-Instagram. I think Facebook was around at this point, but it was mainly just Mm. like our own little vanity project of just like, we thought we were so funny and so you know, silly. So it was more of like this kind of like artistic, like, oh my gosh, we are so hilarious. Like doing these spoofs (laughs) of like paparazzi and like all of these it girls and like, you know, whatever. And that was like the first thing. So it wasn't necessarily the makeup. I mean, I was doing the makeup on myself, but it wasn't like, oh, I want to create, turn, turn myself into this person via makeup. It was like a whole character study of the, you know, pop culture machine of that like 2007 to 2010 era. Do any of these videos still exist, Jared? Um, <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think so. They are so not politically correct anymore oh. because the the vibe, you know, we were... E- e- all I can think back of was like Nicole Richie sending out like a <laughs> an email invite. <laughs> and she was like, you have to be less than 100 pounds to come to this party. And at the time, you know, that was very funny. And obviously nowadays that is not funny. But um, so I don't know if they exist. And if they do, I definitely have them blocked <laughs> in private and you will not be able to find them. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. We're not sharing those. Yeah. You, know. yeah. you will not find them. Like you can Google all you want. You will not find them. Well, thanks for the walk down memory lane. That was awesome. Um, (laughs) You went to college in Florida, and we know you're in LA now. So, you finished up school in in Orlando, and then did you go directly to LA? What what happened next? Um, I mean, it was kind of 
you know, it took me six years to get my two-year degree. So that should put it into a little bit of perspective. (laughs) So I was having a lot of fun in Florida and was figuring out where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be when I grew up. And so... um, (laughs) So there was a lot of downtime and a lot of time, you know, working at, you know, restaurants and different jobs and making friends and really socializing and not not putting like a career first and foremost. Around 24, I decided, you know, I got to make a big change because I can't just sit, you know, sit in this small town in Florida or in Orlando and going back and forth and trying to figure out like what I want to do because I know it's not here. And I didn't know why I wanted to move to LA. I didn't have like a specific reason. At this point, I was not doing makeup even in Orlando or Florida in any capacity. But my younger brother had lived out here since he was 20 and we're a couple years apart. So he'd been out here pursuing a career as acting and still is pursuing that career. So I thought, well, I might as well go to LA since I already have family living there. And so we have that like comfort of having you know, someone you know. And I just Mm. focused on one year. I said, I'm just going to work two jobs and really save up as much money as possible and move out there. And so then I did that around uh, 24 years old. And that's when I moved out here. So were you doing uh, makeup at all before you moved to LA as like a professional, in a professional way as a career? No, not at all. Only on myself for drag and my friends for like Halloween and drag stuff. So then you get to Los Angeles and mm-hmm. you sort you have these makeup skills that you've sort of honed and perfected doing drag and working, you know, uh, doing them on your friends. How did, did, when was like the realization that makeup was the pathway to, you know, use as your creative outlet? Well, I kept doing more drag when I got to LA because the drag scene was so fun and so different than what I had experienced in Florida. So I kept doing drag. And then I, of course, you know, the the cliche, you get a job at a restaurant in Los Angeles to pay the bills and then you have a lot of fun and like you make, make your best friends at this restaurant. And I was lucky all of my friends that I made were extremely creative types. I mean, they were musicians and actors and models and things. So I would start doing drag like, it started like at Halloween because I moved here around Halloween or a, a little, a couple months before Halloween. So I show up to work like decked out for Halloween. I think I was dressed as Honey Boo Boo, but like an adult <laughs> version of Honey Boo Boo. And um, they were like, oh my God, like we did not know this about you. And so then from there, it was just kind of this spiral where P or upward spiral of people being like, well, can you do my makeup for this? Can you do my makeup for that? Mm. And then I was just like, yeah, but it took me a few years because I would do it like for fun. And I still never really clicked like, oh, this is a career. And then one day, one of my friends was like, you know, you can like, I've been on sets, like there's music videos, there's film, there's TV, there's magazine shoots, there's red carpets, there's people need makeup artists in LA, like more than more than what you're thinking in Florida, which was just like weddings and prom, you know? Right. And so one of my friends, Rachel, she was just like, you should just like try to, you know, explore it a little bit more. And I did. I, I took, I did take a couple of classes just to be like, am I missing something? Cause like I've only ever done drag makeup. So I took a couple classes, you know, like one day classes just to kind of learn to make sure I wasn't missing any you know, something very obvious. And they were really helpful classes because they, you know, really taught me about like sanitation and things you don't think mm-hmm. of just on yeah. your own. Like, oh yeah, you have to clean your br- clean your brushes before <laughs> you use it on two different people's faces, that kind right. of stuff. 
Right, right. Because um, you know, it's me and my friends beforehand. We're just sharing eyeliner and sharing lipsticks and stuff. But <laughs> so I was like, oh, it's a little bit different. But um, but then I realized the basis of makeup, especially in that time frame of you know 2012, 2013, 2014, was all about contour and yeah. and all of that stuff. So I was, I mean, that basis of makeup was based in drag. So it was kind of an easy transition, especially because like the Kardashians had blown up and had brought mm-hmm. contour to the mainstream. So it was kind of like really a lucky a lucky time frame to be like, oh, I'm going to get into makeup and the background that I had. Which is interesting just from like some of the stuff I've, I've followed with you, Jared, is that now like you're known for less is more and, and for the, the way that you are able to approach each person with uh, your unique way of actually enhancing like the actual person's lick looks, which is, I mean, I haven't done drag, but to me it's a lot different than 2012, 2013 makeup. Yeah, it's been well. It's been really fun too because of my space working with reality stars. They, the reality stars I work with, uh, skew younger, more my age and younger. So they don't want you know that kind of trend of like heavy, heavy makeup is kind of not on its way out, but it's definitely got a specific place in time. And these girls are looking up to people who are a little bit more fresh faced. So mm. I had to just adapt with that style. And I actually do prefer it for myself. Like when I wear makeup and to do it on others, I, I prefer that less is more approach. I think it's really pretty. And so I just kind of adapted and the basis, the foundation, if you will, <laughs> is still there. Um, of you know what what it takes to kind of like sculpt a face, but you don't necessarily have to do six layers of makeup and contour and you know highlight to do it. You can still achieve the same looks knowing the the tips and tricks of of drag makeup, but with a definite less is more approach. Yeah, I so I I love that you said like you've you've had to just sort of adapt you know your way and your technique as sort of the trends change. I feel like all of us we anyone who's sort of in a creative field it's one of those things where it's you you have to be able to adapt and change as as things change as people change as trends change um and i it's uh always good to hear you know when people say that out loud because it's you know there's sometimes where you know people sort of get stuck in a rut where they're doing the same old thing and sort of not necessarily unwilling to change, but unwilling to, you know, sort of grow the grow what it is that you're doing or enhance the way that you're doing things. I when you when you said that, Jared, my I was thinking of my grandma. My grandma was the matriarch of our family. She was the the one who led our family into building this hospitality, mini hospitality empire with restaurants, hotels, and you know, conference centers and all that stuff. And I remember there being conversations about like napkin folds. And I remember some people would say to her, no, we've been doing this, this, we've been folding this napkin the same way for 10 years. And my grandma just, I I remember her pushing it and saying, let's try the napkin fold this way because it's just a little bit different and it's a little bit more on trend, you know, maybe she didn't use those words, but I just remember her doing that and fight, not fighting, but pushing everyone that worked, you know, in this, you know, family business to not just get stuck in this same old thing that we do, but really sort of pushing people and all of us to be inventive and be creative. So it's, I feel like, you know, in any sort of industry that you work in that where there's that creative aspect to it and you're working with people and uh, showcasing things, I think it's just really an important lesson to point out. Absolutely. I totally agree. 
So, uh, Jared, the one question I do have, do you still do drag? Um, <laughs> I, I, well, I haven't in the, since I got sick or in the pandemic because just because I haven't, <laughs> but, um, I still will put on a full face of makeup to film like a video or to take pictures and stuff, but I haven't done like a proper like wig, dress, high heels look in about a well, I guess what's going on two years now, mm-hmm. but um, but I do it now very infrequently. But I do have, and I will start doing this again when you know um, things open up, whatever year that may be. But I do a birthday party every year that I host in drag with other drag queens. That's always a charity benefit, and that's been like my one little. And Halloween, of course, but that's my birthday party. My charity birthday party is always a big drag uh, to do. So that's usually when I when I sa- save you know save up to do it for then because I don't love to be in drag like I used to. Like I used to, you know, it was so fun to always do it, and now it's it's very exhausting. So <laughs> I don't always do it. Well, um, it's a lot of work. Well, it, to be fair, and you just said the word, Anthony. It's a lot of work. Now that this has become your profession, how did you get into to, to television? Was it just by knowing some of the people in the restaurant that then started getting into entertainment or how did that happen? When I was working at the restaurant, I started to really just kind of have a, an awakening. I guess, you know, I was turning 25 or 26 and just be like, just, you know, you're just start to grow up a little bit. And I had lived in such mm-hmm. a small bubble. Even when I moved to LA, my bubble was still small. I never left Venice. I worked uh, like by the beach and we just lived our life just like, you know, just young, dumb and carefree. And then I started to really notice like the homeless population in Venice and it really started to kind of trigger me. And so I found an organization that was uh, helping homeless youth. And it really spoke to me because I was just like Googling, like there's something I got to be able to do. And so I started volunteering with this homeless organization. And just by, you know, I don't, I'm not like super spiritual or anything, but just by chance of coincidence, I met someone who was volunteering there also. And I told her, I was like, oh, you know, like I'm a, I'm a waiter, but I'm also like trying to get into the makeup industry. And she was like, oh my gosh, like I have, you know, I'm the head of publicity for this makeup company that, or like this service company that provides makeup for people who are like VIPs with different networks and different, you know, like TV stations and all of this stuff. And so it was total chance. And she was just like, oh my gosh, send me your contact and let's get it going. And it was really one of those fortuitous moments of like, you know, right place, right time. And I do Mm -hmm. feel like sometimes like being, you know, when you, it's always like that when you least expect it kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm. I was there to volunteer to help people not to, not to get a job as a makeup artist. And it's like, go figure when you, the one minute you're like not thinking about like your career, trying to push yourself forward is the moment that something happens for you in a positive way. So it's like, you know, very, very coincidental and fortuitous, but that's how it happens. So from there, it was just kind of like a pretty quick escalation because I made, made friends with the people that I started working with uh, from the show Vanderpump Rules. And then, you know, they can, once you start working with people who have like a following, then then you're considered legitimate to other people who follow, you know, who follow them. So they can kind of vouch for you. And so then it just kind of keeps going. And that's, that's the way it's been. That's a really... I've- did not know that about you and how that worked with your volunteer work. That's really cool. It's kind of like this. It's, it reminds me of like the, you know the person who was like, "Oh, I said I was never going to be in a relationship," and then that's when I got in the relationship. Or you know, <laughs> um, oh my gosh, exactly. It's like the exact same thing. How many? So how many years now has it been that you've been working in production with makeup, Jared? Um, I guess it's going on like maybe four or five. It's hard to count, you know, with this past year has been so insane. But I, I only four or five, I would say. So then in two thousand nineteen 
you, did you start having some just not feeling some things you didn't feel right, or w- what happened to really get you to uh, to the doctor to to realize that maybe something wasn't right with it with yourself? Oh yeah. So in the summer of 2019, last year, I was starting to just feel sick, kind of like normal sick. Started with migraines uh, initially, and then those migraines became you know, like days where I would just like not be able to get up or if I had to go to work, like it was the only thing I was able to do. And sometimes, you know, work for me would be like just going to do someone's makeup for an hour and then coming home. But that would take the life out of me. Like it would just suck me, suck me dry and I would go to bed for the rest of the day. I mean, we're talking like I would get up at 11, go do someone's makeup from 12 to 1, come back home by 2, and then I would be in bed for the rest of the day. Mm. And then it started to get really bad at the end of July and August. And I was still working through, like I still went to conference Comic-Con with one of my clients and, you know, I was working through, but like I would be getting sick and running to the bathroom sick and not being able to like eat food. And then by August, it was to the point where I was not able to keep down any food or water. And I had lost 30 pounds in about a three week period. And I was seeing all these specialists and they were saying, you know, like, okay, go to a you know, like a brain doctor for your migraines, go to a heart doctor because your heart was always beating fast because like I was always dehydrated and then like go to a stomach doctor because like you keep, you know, like you're not able to digest food or anything. So I kept going to a specialist and I finally saw like my, it was my ear, ears, nose and throat doctor saw me and she was like, honestly, you need to go to a, like a teaching hospital, one that specializes in like infectious diseases. Cause I had traveled to randomly to Kentucky, but um, they thought maybe like, because <laughs> maybe some like bug in Kentucky bit me like a mosquito that I'm not used to or something, something random like that. And I went, I left her office. It was on a Saturday. They were open on a Saturday and she was like, you should go like right now, honestly. Cause like a 30 pound weight loss is worrisome. And like, you know, all of this is worrisome. So I went into a teaching hospital, you know, like a big university hospital And I went to their emergency department and they admitted me immediately. And within two days, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, which is an aggressive form of leukemia. So you're, for acute myeloid leukemia, it tends to show up more in older individuals. Is is that correct or am I wrong about that? No, that's correct. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I mean, it does affect young people, but um, it's primary target demographic are people like 60 plus. So it's definitely a surprise. So you hear that diagnosis, are you by yourself? Is there anybody with you? Any family or anything or? Um, Once I was admitted and there was talks that it could be cancer because, you know, it was a very amazing facility and very high tech and they had already started to, to test running everything from infectious disease to cancer my mom was on the first flight out. So she was there. The se- uh, I was diagnosed in two days and she was there on the, f- the s- before I got diagnosed. So my mom was already with me by that time. So what was, uh, you, you know, you're sitting there in this hospital and they tell you that you have AML. What was sort of the immediate reaction that you had? Well, you know, I mean, it's, I run very anxious in general. Like I'm the type of person who takes pills to fly on a plane. I like can't, you know, I'm very nervous person in general. I was already on a medicinal drip of medicine that like keeps you kind of calm because I was having like just such irregular heartbeats and like uh, severe um, heart palpitations because I was just a nervous wreck the entire time. Yeah. So I was pretty subdued, but I do remember just being like, 
I mean, I was just like, am I going to die? That's, that was the first yeah. thing I made. Just, I just said, am I going to die? And then I just like lost it, you know, just crying, freaking yeah. out. And my mom is the opposite of me. My mom is very, um, you know, she's a math teacher. She's got her doctorate in mathematics. So she's very like... Problem solving sounds like. Problem yeah. solving. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So she was... Obviously, she's very emotional, but she like was like, okay, so what do we do? You know, she spoke to the doctor, and I really regressed emo- emotionally. I was like, I don't want to know the details. Mm-hmm. I just want to know, like, am I going to die? You know, yeah. and that was kind of like my initial response, and that was kind of my response for the first like month and a half while I was in the hospital. I did not accept it, and I did not ask any questions other than, will I die? Yes or no. <laughs> so, Jared, from that moment, then were you in the hospital? consistently for a month and a half or did you get to go home some what was that like in the beginning um once i was diagnosed and admitted from the emergency room once the diagnosis was conf- diagnosis was confirmed they moved me to the uh, blood cancer wing and i stayed there for my induction chemo which is like the really hard chemo that you that you kind of like see on tv or in movies you know where it's like kind of constant and you're like, you're really sick and you lose all your hair and all of that stuff. So I did that for, it's about a week long process. And then you have to stay in the hospital because it kills all your immunity. So they don't want you to go out and have the chance of like getting sick from something random, um, like a common cold or a flu or something. And so I had to stay until my uh, numbers, like my immunity numbers went up. So it ended up being, I was checked in August 27th was when I was diagnosed. So I was out by mm, a little bit before October. So I was in for all of September and some of October. So when you went home, so you go home, your, is your did your mom stay with you the entire time you were going through this process? Yeah, well, they would, because my mom still had to work and stuff. So my dad sure. would come out and luckily my brother lives out here, but it, I always had one of my parents, they would they would switch out like a couple weeks at a time. Got it. And since my brother had his uh, his apartment with an extra bedroom in it, they mm-hmm. would stay with him. And most uh, the first month and a half, that I, the first time I was in the hospital before I left, I had someone stay with me every night because I was so afraid. Yeah. So I always had someone sleeping on that uncomfortable little like plastic couch that they have in hospital rooms. So it was always my brother, my mom, or my dad. So they were, I mean, they were your main support system at, at that time. And it was okay Mm -hmm. for them to be with you um, at the hospital. There were no uh, like worries about them coming in and out. Not at that time. The I feel like um because it was definitely pre-coronavirus, obviously. So there was no no lockdown like that in play. And it was more just like Ironically enough, we did social distance and like they would wear masks mm. and things like this way back in August and you know August and September. Yeah, but, um, and wash their hands consistently and clean my room and wipe down things. But I did have like a steady stream of visitors, and it wasn't a concern of the doctors. The, the, the concern wasn't so heavy. It was just the kind of like keep your distance, you know, wear a mask, and if anyone yeah. had any symptoms or felt sick, they weren't allowed to visit me. Right. right. Yeah. And just to clarify, this is fall. This is fall 2019, everyone. So. We're referring to more just as far as like with your being immune compromised with your white blood cell count from all the chemo. Jared, I also, I just out of curiosity, I've had some friends and family. Did you have to do any radiation as well with this chemotherapy? Um, I didn't have to get radiation until March before my transplant. So I would go get chemo once a month, every month from the time I was released in October. I went back in November, December, January, February for maintenance chemo. And then when I went back in March for my transplant, I had another round of this induction chemo 
chemo in my spine, and then radi- uh, six rounds of radiation to really clear out my body of any possible remaining cancer cells before my transplant was mm-hmm. given to me. So, wow. Jared, when you get when you get your diagnosis, did you keep this too close to your you and your, your, your family, or did was it something that you shared with with your you know in confidence to people, or were you just completely open about it? How was it for you? Um, once I found out the same day I typed up a notes app and put it on my social media and mm. was very open about it from day one. So I shared it. And also because I had very, very huge problems with my insurance, not wanting to cover the care. They wanted to send me to a hospital that did not have a, they wanted to put me in a hospital that I would share a room at because I had very bad insurance because, you know, when you're young, you just think, oh, I'll get, I'll get the cheapest plan. Right. And you know, there's obviously some healthcare issues out there in the world right now. So we will not get political about it, but there are issues and I was directly affected by those issues. And obviously my mom was not about to have them send me to a public hospital, sharing a room with a roommate while I was getting chemo treatments that, you know, just, it just wasn't an, just wasn't an option for my own safety. So I immediately, they, uh, my best friend sent, set up a GoFundMe. And so obviously Mm. While that was happening, I was like, well, I have to share. I can't just set up a GoFundMe for no reason. So I decided to share my diagnosis. And it's still on my Instagram post from the day it was diagnosed. I think it was actually on August 27th, the same day. I don't know how I pulled it together to write it. I don't remember writing it, but I did share it. And um, because of who my clients are and you know they've all become my friends, uh, some media outlets picked it up and whatnot. So it was very public from the get-go. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, as far as it... Uh the support that that outpoured out for you and that and also then that what you've been able to do unfold for other people that are you know being diagnosed with with cancer and just uh, being on on the other side of of you know of sharing that on social media did you start to get um any contacts or dms from from from, from other young people uh you know i did i got a lot of messages especially initially when all of my um celebrity friends were sharing the sharing my gofundme and sharing my story and stuff i would get flooded with DMs and a lot of it was support just like we're thinking of you you know you don't know me but like I know you know I, I'm a fan of so and so and I saw she posted about the you so blah 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 or oh I don't know you but my dad had this you know and I know how tough it can be it was really a scary it was really tough to process at that time because I hadn't fully accepted my diagnosis so I did get a lot of DMs and a lot of people you know, letting me know they're donating in honor of someone who had passed away from the same uh, disease. Mm. So that really freaked me out. And that was like a very tough kind of thing to balance out of like my appreciation and gratitude for that kind of support, but also hearing like someone's died from the same thing. Cause you got to remember my main focus for this month while I was in the hospital was like, am I going to die? And so it was definitely a very tricky time to navigate it. But once that first month, so there's probably a lot of DMs that I missed that month. And once that month passed and I was told, you know, I mean, the numbers still, like they were in my favor. It, it was 70, 70% chance survival, 30% chance not, which to me does not sound good, but the doctor seemed to think that was a good, that good, good thing to tell me. But once I was kind of, you know, my, I was calmed down and found out I was in remission, I was able to kind of really dive into those DMs and really see like, you know, I'm not alone. 
They're mm-hmm. other people are not alone. They they found me through however means they found me, whether it's they like someone on t- TV show who posted about me or they just found me through a hashtag or whatever. And it was really it ended up being quite comforting to see that I had a had support system outside of my friends and family, and that. I could be someone's support system as well via mm-hmm. social media. So it was very, it was complicated at first, but I love it now. You know, I love that, that I have that ability to, to reach out with, to people and to be in contact with people. So Jared, with, with your diagnosis, you had a stem cell transplant. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Can you, I remember reading, or I think it was in one of your stories that literally... So this is fast forward, let's bring everybody here. So when you actually, so you had the chemo, you had the treatment you talked about earlier, but then your actual, was it considered a procedure or a transplant, I guess, was, was, was what the technical term is? Um, it's actually, a, it, I mean, it is a transplant, but it's a transfusion. So it's done through like a bag, through a permanent, or a semi-permanent IV that was in my arm during this time. So now, at this time, we are now, in, just to bring everyone up to date, we're, we're now in COVID, right? This is March, no? Mm-hmm. Yes. So literally, I remember seeing that your stem cells came all the way from Germany. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Just so everyone understands like just how down to the wire this was. They came 24 hours before the travel ban on a plane. Not to add a little bit more um, <laughs> to the, the seriousness of the situation, but just like about how this was really affecting you know everyone's life, including yours on this the life-saving transfusion you were waiting to have. Did, did, did you know when this was going on that, I mean, that there was a possibility that they would, would not make it there in time or, or not in time, but they would, whether or not the, the flight would happen or was that something known afterwards? No, I knew during, it was happening live because I was checked into the hospital to start pre like the chemo and the radiation on March 6th. So by then it was just talks of key, of uh, coronavirus, you know, like maybe a case had been found in the US, but like yeah. nothing, nothing major. And then I'll oh, cut to a week later, I'm scheduled to get my stem cells on March 13th. I'm scheduled for my transplant on Friday the 13th. And I get on, I'm watching the news Thursday night and they're saying a travel ban is going to go into effect because Corona is getting out of control. Mm. And literally my the type of stem cell transplant I, can, I have, they can't freeze them. Like some stem cell transplants, they can freeze, but mine can't be free, frozen. They have to be like refrigerated and someone literally carries them on a flight from Germany in a cooler and gets off the flight and comes straight to the hospital with them. And so there was a, a very real possibility that these uh, stem cells were not going to make it after doing you know six rounds of radiation, another two rounds of chemo, all of this preparation within a week period to get me ready for these stem cells. And I was so nervous. And the hospital hadn't even shut down visitors yet. So my mom was with me and she's like, they're going to come. Like, I just know they're going to come. And then Friday mm. morning, my doctors came in and said, we got them like at, you know, f- 3 a.m. And they've just been in the refrigerator, like waiting for the transplant to happen. Like when we got here today at 6 a.m. or whatever. So they arrived just in the nick of time. My mom was able to be there for my transplant. And then literally that night, we got noticed that no visitors were allowed anymore in the hospital. Mm. So I got my transplant with my mom by my side. And I think my whole family was there. But um, then the next day, it was just just back to me, and I had to stay in the hospital for a month alone while COVID took over and while I recovered from the transplant for that month or so period. Wow. I'm really glad you're able to have your family with you, though, for the actual procedure. These came from Germany. Obviously, there must be something. I'm not really uh, scientific about things, or, or obviously not a doctor, but... 
they came from Germany for a reason. There was a matchmaking process that took place with this, basically. Yeah, so there's an international registry of like bone marrow donors, and it's they look all over the world. It's like the same registry, but there's different organizations that kind of facilitate it. Like there's a couple organizations in America, one that I'm a partner with called Be the Match, mm-hmm. and then it's an international registry that like all hospitals that do transplants can access. I think it's actually required in Germany or like very much promoted in Germany to at, at a certain age you sign up to be in the da- database. And of course you're not required to do it if you get the call, but a lot of cuz I've known a lot of people have German matches, which I think is interesting. And I think it is because it is like so culturally required to kind of like do your part and like help save a life, et cetera. Yeah. So there's a reg- an international registry and it just so happened that my match, um, you know, it's based on a lot of your genetics. So, you know, I'm mm-hmm. white, I have light hair and light eyes. And so a lot of that stuff is similar to people in Germany and like European descent. So my doctors told me like chances are my donor would come from either someone with the same background as me here or someone from Europe. So I was kind of expecting it, but, um, but it ended up being someone from Europe. Hmm. Wow. So Jared, I was going to take us back. So into the, to the hospital. So you have this transfusion the next day uh, or that night, everyone, uh, is told they have to leave the hospital. You're in the hospital for now. It's going to be for 30 days that you have to stay there. What that process, I can only imagine, you know, sort of being in isolation had to be difficult. What what were some of the things that got you through that time in isolation? Well, you know, I had, I had gotten so used to my week-long stays for chemo that I got to the point where I would have like a friend drop me off to chemo and like stay with me while I got situated in the hospital. And then I would spend like my, I got used to staying alone in the hospital because that first Mm -hmm. month, you know, no one left my side. But then when I realized like there is a little bit of hope, I'm not so scared. And also you just kind of become a veteran. You just kind of become like, all right, like this is another, another day. Like, Mm -hmm. here we go. Um, so I had kind of developed a sense of routine that I, that I liked. Um, you know, I, uh, one of my one of my clients had gifted me with an iPad, which I um, cannot tell you how grateful I am for that thing because hospital TV is not fun, and <laughs> so that really helped me a lot. Is so I was able to you know have all my streaming services, and I really got into a lot of shows, which is probably why I'm so over TV right now in quarantine, which is you know not not the ideal <laughs> ideal time to be over TV, but I am, and um, sure. I really got into discovering like my old favorite music, like from the nineties when I was a kid and like Mm. new music that I had never listened to. I would like get on Spotify and search things. And then I befriended a couple of nurses, just like how I am with my clients. Like I, no one, no matter if you don't know me, you pretty much leave knowing me and becoming one of my friends. So the nurses (laughs) that work on that floor, especially during COVID, they are, they're seeing me pretty regularly because they're not, you know, they're working their shifts and they're not doing a bunch of other stuff because COVID was so scary. I mean, it still is scary, but like they were very extra precautious at the beginning of like not letting, you know, not letting um, temporary nurses come into the floor or anything. It was always like the same nurses over and over. So I really made friends with them and I celebrated my 32nd birthday during this time. And they like threw me a party Mm. of two, two of my favorite nurses came in that day to work. And, you know, they brought me, 
I don't know what kind of cake it was from the hospital cafeteria, but <laughs> we still celebrated. She hung up some unicorn um, blinking lights and we uh, played Lady Gaga's new song that had just come out, Stupid Love, and had like a bedside dance party. So, you know, I really made it work and it was it was tough, but it really, um, looking back, I'm like, you know what? It was That was not even the worst part. You know, like yeah. being alone that for that length of time was not the worst part of it. So... It was it it was surprisingly not as hard as I expected, and of course you stay connected with everyone on Facetime and stuff, so it was pretty easy. Sure. Do you think during this time were you more active on social media with the people that started following you? Just because I feel like you know when all of this first you know when everything sort of first happened, I feel like there was just like just more people with more time you know were on social. So did did your following grow? Did your, did your videos, you know, start to get more attention? Um, you know, during that, at the beginning of quarantine, when I was in the hospital with my transplant, it's such a grueling process that I did not spend as much time documenting it or interacting on social media. My following did grow between the time I got diagnosed to where we are now. And so it did definitely did grow and I would do little updates and things like that. But I was just not in the uh, headspace to actually like do to like even focus on like engaging or whatever. Sure. And so it didn't happen until I got out of the hospital because there's, there is, even though it's like a bl- technically a blood transfusion, it still has like the same pain as like a transplant, like an organ transplant. Oh. Like your whole body is getting rebuilding the marrow within, within your bones. So you can only imagine the type of pain that is and the type of medicine they give you to to stop that pain. So I was out of it for a lot of those times. I mean, I have distinct memories, like I said, like my birthday party. I remember certain things, but a lot of it I do not remember. Mm. And I don't think, I I mean, I would literally have to go check my my Instagram to see (laughs) if I posted anything, but it was definitely a lot less posting and a lot less engagement with me when other people until after a few weeks of really, really settling into my transplant. And then by the time I'd gotten home from the hospital, we were in full lockdown, you know, April. And yeah. that's when I really started to sit, to start like interacting with people more regularly and really starting to talk to people who maybe had just been diagnosed or were worrying. I mean, I even had one person who was like, I have these symptoms. Like, are these similar symptoms that you had? And I was like, I am not a doctor. Please do not ask my advice for it. Like, I promise you, like, and I was just like, just do not get freaked out and, you know, like go get the test, the necessary test done. But like, I don't want to tell you anything because like my only symptom was headache and weight loss. So it's like, Mm. I don't know. Like, I really don't know. But, um, but after I got home from the from my hospital stay was when I really started to engage with um, people who had gone through, you know, who'd gone through it or who are going through it or who have family members, et cetera, going through it. Jared, is there, is there a, as far as, you know, when you think of an organ transplant, um, the body can reject it. With your stem cells, had your doctors warned about the, that there was like a time period where we had to be careful that, that this took, that this transformation process would take place or, or is that totally off? Am I, am I wrong on that? No, you're absolutely right, actually. So the most important time after a transplant of any time of any kind is the first one hundred days. So about three months and you know, three months and ten days or whatever. And so that hundred days was very, you know, going to the doctor, I think twice a week and getting, I was taking, I mean, upwards of 30 pills a day, different types of anti-rejection medications and all sorts of things. And then, 
after the 100 days, that's like the really danger zone of rejecting it. And then after the 100 days, then it goes to the six-month period. So then the six-month period is still a danger zone, but not like a red flag. It's like an orange flag. So then I'm still on anti-rejection medications, but then I was able to start tapering off from like 30 pills a day to maybe, you know, 20-something pills. And then now I'm at eight months post-transplant. So now I see my doctors uh, every two, once every two weeks, and I'm still on my anti-rejection pill but I'm now down from, oh, I don't know what the dose was, but now I'm down to one pill a day as opposed to, you know, 16 pills of the Mm -hmm. same medicine a day. So it's definitely, there is that possibility of rejection. And if anyone who does have AML and does go through a rejection, you know, it's not, it's not like the end all be all. There's many ways to survive a rejection. I'm very lucky that that did not occur to me. But if it does happen, there's, there's so many protocols in place to keep that, you know, to keep it, active and keep you well, even if you do reject your uh, donation in the first the first round. Yeah, thanks for stressing that. That's really good. And I think it's important to know that just like your journey, how with when the person who reached out to you, you before you, you had your diagnosis, you, you shared with us how you went to ENT doctors, you went to multiple mm-hmm. different, you know, and then, you know, eventually to an infectious disease hospital specifically. And just the importance of like, if you don't feel right, like, don't give up. Keep you know trying to find out do you finally get the answer what's wrong with 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 you um just like because you can almost get doctor fatigue sometime if you got something that's wrong. I know I had something that was wrong with me a couple of years ago and it took a year to figure it out but I I'm glad I kept kept you know just kept trying to figure out what you know what it was you know yeah I think it's important and you have to balance like hypochondria and like actual fear like oh my gosh like you know, if anyone's listening, it's like, I had a headache yesterday. It's most likely not leukemia. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's like, so it is a good balance of having like taking care of your body and knowing your body. And for me, it was just like, I knew something was wrong. Mm. Like, trust me, as much as I would love to just be able to lose 30 pounds like that, like with a click of a button, like that was not normal for my body type. So right. that was a big red flag. So I just had to listen and be persistent about it. It did take me two months to get to that point. But you, you, you'll you know, like you'll know when it's something like, oh, I'm kind of like, I don't feel well versus like, oh, there's something wrong. Like you really will know. Like I knew for, I remember telling my mom in early July, like, like something is seriously wrong with me, like mark my words. <laughs> and not to be like, you know, like a doomsdayer, but I just knew, you know? And so I think knowing your body and stuff is, is really powerful. I liked also how you talked about like, you know, for your birthday that, you know, just like, you know, and how you, you just make friends places where you go and, you know, that wherever we're at, like that love is contagious, laughter is contagious, all hope is contagious, is it, you know? And all it takes is one or two people to have a celebration, you know, you know, for a birthday. I'm really glad that you had such great care and, and we, you know, shout out to all the healthcare workers out there. There's just so many amazing, especially nurses that just do such, such amazing work. You know, I say that all the time. Nurses are a different breed of people. I do not know how they do it. The, the level of like knowledge they have plus the level of care they have because doctors are super knowledgeable, but they don't have that same, you know, they just don't have that same way. It's something, dif- it's, it's something very special. Yeah. Yes, it's almost like a, a, something you're born into, you know. For, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a gift. It's yeah. a gift to be able to do their work and then also have the the persona to be able to really take care of people. And I I, I don't know, I personally, I've just, I've experienced that with nurses and it's, uh, it's a gift. Definitely. With, you know, I just wanted to go back, Jared, you talked about... Um, 
I think it's important for, for, for anyone who's listening. Is there anything that we can do w- with, with, uh, to help out? Obviously, Be The Match, you mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. They have an Instagram account. Uh, you're involved with them as well. Yeah, so Be The Match is a uh, is part of the, that international registry that I spoke of. And basically, it's I encourage every single person to sign up to be a part of it. It is literally, they will mail you for free a cotton swab that you just swab the inside of your cheek. And that will go into a database. And if they will collect you know, your DNA, and if for some in some future that someone needs help, they will kind of scan the database based on the genetic markers of the person who needs help like I did. And they will find a match for that person. And then you're sent a request like if you want to follow through and donate your stem cells. It is not a... The myth is that it's a very painful procedure like that they're going to cut open your bones and get your marrow out. That's way like in a giant Frankenstein surgery. It is not that way. It is just like an extended blood draw. So it's very... um, um, pain-free, you know, it's, it, it is, does take more time than a normal blood draw, but it is, you know, they take great care of you. People are doing it even during the pandemic very safely and saving so many lives. And I really love the fact that they are so pro-LGBTQIA+. They don't discriminate against anyone based on their, um, you know, sexual orientation, the gender that they identify as. Everyone is welcome to donate to get a, a swab kit and do a sample and see if they will eventually be someone's match. And it really saves so many lives. I just got a message from a, a aunt to a three-and-a-half-year-old girl who needs a bone marrow transplant just like I have. And they're having such a hard time finding her a match. So it's like mm. so heartbreaking. And it's just like there, you know, there's such stigma around donating in general because people don't want to be on a registry. They think it's like the government, or they think it's, you know, homophobic and that they won't be accepted, mm. or they think that they won't make a difference and it won't help, or it's painful. And there's just so many myths yeah. around it that I'm really passionate about debunking. Uh, which is why I'm on the board of ambassadors for Be The Match because it's just like something I want to speak out to all the time. Like wow. there's, you know, nothing, there's no harm in doing it. The worst, if it doesn't work out with your schedule for some reason, for some unforeseen reason, you can't do it, then, you know, you can always turn it down, but it does no harm to just sign up to to be a donor, to be wow. a possible donor. That's, you know, and I, it's really good that you were talking about this. Um, I know for myself after 9-11, I was in Indiana with one of my friends and they said that they needed blood and I went, I was out to her. She was an amazing, she's an amazing, amazing friend. Her name was Lauren. And she's like, well, you know, what, what, what can we do? What, what can we, what is the solution? We want to be part of the solution today. You know, what action can we do? And we went to go donate blood and, and they turned, they, they asked me, you know, that, that did not specifically, it wasn't like they were, they just said, you know, if you're, if you're gay, you can't. And I was just like, and, and since that day, I've just kind of like, when I hear about opportunities to donate, I just turn it off in my head because of that. So I think it's really important for, for, you know, the work you're doing and to know that, that we can participate in this process. Absolutely. And they're working really hard with other organizations like Homoglobin to destigmatize and to de and to change the legislature that was put in place in the 80s to allow that, you know, that homophobic rhetoric to go away. So they're working hard at it and be the match is one of the first to really prioritize the fact that anyone can donate as long as of course you don't have you know an actual like if you like I can't donate because I have I've had cancer but other than that you are free to donate yeah so these are so, two different organizations sorry Anthony there's two different organizations we're referring to one is be the match and the other one is homoglobin um, and those will both be in uh, Jared's profile um, on talk out loud on the website as well too for anyone who's more interested in that information 
Yeah, and I, uh, Jeff, thanks for doing that. And I also just wanted to say too, just for anybody who's listening that maybe doesn't know exactly what we're talking about, we as a, a gay person, we're not allowed to donate blood. Uh, and like Jared said, it's uh, an old law that was put um, into effect in the 80s during the AIDS crisis. And to this day, we're still turned away to to donate blood. So it's great that there are organizations out there that are um, moving us in the right direction, but it's one of those things that needs to be fixed legally so that we can legally donate blood again. So Jared, um, thank you so First of all, I just really want to thank you so much for just being so open about your experience. And, you know, and I think that, you know, we've, we've t- we talked to you before and it's important that, you know, sometimes that, we, like I've witnessed with with friends or family members that have cancer, that sometimes we we push this as a society this idea that you know oh you're you're going to kick cancer's ass you're going to be a warrior and um, can you speak to like about like it being okay to have a bad day with with cancer and and you know that you don't always have to necessarily be a warrior. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was bombarded with. Um, well-meaning wishes and, you know, gifts that, you know, say like cancer fighter and cancer warrior from day one. And, you know, disclaimer, like I appreciate all the gifts and all the support and all the love, but it very, it very much freaked me out because I felt so weak, especially after fighting this disease unknowingly for almost three months. And then you throw in this like insane chemo where I could barely walk from my hospital bed to the bathroom and in fact, I wasn't able to any longer. I would have to use, you know, devices to help me use the restroom and stuff. And so I did not feel strong. And yeah, I was being thrown, you know, shoved down my throat, this lingo of, you are a warrior. You're so strong. You have to fight every day. You you must fight. You must fight. You're going to beat this like through fight and, you know, through fighting and through warrior and all of this stuff. And it just really struck me as... Um, almost kind of a form of like toxic positivity where it was like, this This doesn't need to be the way to... I, I, I appreciate if that is the way that that speaks to you and you feel like a fighter. And I understand because a lot of people do respond to that and it, it resonates with them. But, I, I, but my whole notion is you can you can still fight cancer and you can still beat cancer and you can still fight really hard and still win and not feel like any of those things. Because I can promise you, I never felt like that until maybe in December after going through, you know, four rounds or five rounds of chemo. And then I was able to walk, you know, half a mile for the first time. And then I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel strong again. And mm-hmm. I was lucky again. I, as I've mentioned many times, I have very supportive parents. And I remember crying to my mom saying, mom, I'm not a fighter. Like I'm, I, first of all, I'm not a fighter in general. Like I can't, I don't even argue with people. I don't fight with people. Like, how am I supposed to fight this phys- you know, physically? Like, what do I do? Like, I'm just laying here. Like, how am I missing? Like, what am I missing? And she, you know, she was very wise and very quick to say, Jared, you don't have to do anything. Your body's going to do the fighting. It's just it's just a um, lingo that people have adapted to make them feel good. And if it doesn't make you feel good, then you don't you don't have to right. you don't have to subscribe to that lingo. Go moms. That's yeah. So, yes. yeah. You know, and that's and that's the thing. Like if that's a surfboard that you want to get on, and that and that and that's how you're able to get up on the wave and get through this. That's great. But you know, I think I, I remember you, you talking about something about like I'm not okay today, and today's not forever, and I'll be okay again. Or you know that it, you know that there's going to be some bad days. 
Yeah, and there's going to be, and if, if you're fighting cancer, there's going to be a lot of bad days and you're not going to feel strong. And I feel like it's a, for me personally, and again, this is just my point of view, but the, it's a disservice to yourself if that does not resonate with you to be bombarded with the thought of like, you have to fight, you have to right. be a warrior. There's things you have to do. You have to walk. If your doctors tell you to walk, you have to walk. And if your doctors tell you to try and eat something, you have to try and eat something. But that doesn't have to co, you know, that doesn't have to coincide with like, yes, you took a bite of soup. You are a fighter. You know, like you can also just be like, damn, all right, I ate some soup. Good for me. Like there I did it. You know, like it just, it's, I I just don't subscribe to any form of toxic positivity. I just don't find it from my personality type. And I know from a lot of the DMs I get, a lot of people, it doesn't resonate with me. So I just want to kind of normalize that as well. Kind of be like, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to be a fighter. You can just be, you can just exist and mm-hmm. your body will still, your body and the medicine and the work you do, uh, whatever that work may be, whether it's just sitting up uh, for the day, that will be enough f- of a fight for against the cancer. Right. It's almost like you're not the warrior. It's what's happening inside you is going to be the champion to get every everything you know back to normal or better. Um, and really your role sounds like that the role that we really should be encouraging people to do is just do those little tasks that you're able to do like you said sitting up walking if that's what your doctor you know tells you to do if you follow sort of those guidelines that's what sounds like is really going to help you sort of be a warrior or be a champion you know in the ring of fighting you know the cancer or the disease that you have Absolutely. And I always say like, don't succumb to it. Don't give up, right. you know? Right, right. Because there is like that mental th- thought process of like, oh, I've given up. Yeah. It's not that. That's not the same as not accepting being a warrior. But I just am very much pro-medication, pro, you know, like yeah. I took so much medication in the hospital. I took pain medication, anxiety medication, depression medication, nausea medication, anything that they could give me, sleeping medication so I could sleep at night without waking up feeling sick. I mean, mm. utilize it all. That there's a, there's a reason that that exists and utilize it. I just, mm. you know, when I first got, I started to explore that world of kind of like cancer on Instagram and like how to fight it. And I just did not, I ended up not following any of the people that were really promoting it because I found it very unrelatable and very much like it just did not, it just did not, did not go with the way I was feeling. And so I just ended up rejecting it. And so I did that on my own. So I did not follow, you know, cancer survivors. I didn't contact anyone who had been a survivor. Uh, just because I didn't resonate with what was out there because it, it, it feels like it's such a niche market already of like young people with cancer and for it to be bombarded with this like unrealistic idea that you are some sort of, you know, marine fighting. It would just didn't, didn't do it for me. Yeah. Did you, did you find Jared a lot of resources for people who are LGBTQI plus who were dealing with cancer? Um, I found zero to be, to be oh, specific. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Um, no, granted, I haven't surprised? actively... <laughs> what was that? Were, were you surprised about that? I mean, that to me, that's like almost, that's like shocking. Yeah, I'm I, especially like in a big city like Los Angeles, but I did not... Um, I do have to admit, I wasn't actively looking while I was in treatment because a lot of the support groups that I found were for people who you know, as a mixed bag, uh, especially because I was, I was determined to find a young people's, like a young person support group because I just, you know, just because I'm 32, I don't want to be going to a room. This is, you know, pre-COVID. I didn't want to go to a room with people who were 40 years older than me, 
who just couldn't relate to the same experience. Just It was just a different type of vibe. So I did find a, a young person support group. And actually in that support group, I was the only LGBTQ person. Mm. And they, the people that were there, the, for young people, it's anyone from you know in their teens up to 42. So it's already a widespread net. And it was people with from all walks of life you know who were terminally ill people who were survivors of cancer people who were going through it like i was so it was really surprising to learn that there was not a lot of well nothing really relatable specifically to me aside from the fact like oh we're young and have cancer well and that's you know i think the the word that we talked we could use is isolation right so um, how this could be an isolating journey if you if you feel like you're alone and by yourself in in this have you, with, with what you've done with your advocacy work, I, I've got to believe that, you know, at least my personal experience with some things in life that have been challenging is like, you know, when I speak of it, then I give other people permission to speak about something maybe that's not been spoken to. Have you have found that to be at all in your experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I have um, even just little things like other gay, young gay guys will message me and be like, you know, like, yes, we're gay with cancer, which is such a funny thing to do. But it is, but it is kind of like, it, you know, it's, it's our own form of empowerment. And it's like, you want to see, because it is such an isolating experience. It's like isolation on, on top of isolation on top of isolation. Because now, especially this year, you're already isolated because of COVID. Then you're already mm-hmm. isolated for being a gay person, especially if you're in a small town or a rural area or anywhere mm-hmm. that's not um, as gay-friendly as like Los Angeles. And then you have the uh, extremely isolating experience of having cancer as a young person, which you are probably the only person in your friend group to have that diagnosis and that experience. So it's like mm. triple isolation. So it has been very nice to connect with people on social media in that platform and to be, now that I'm, you know, I'm not cured by any means, but to be on this kind of positive road, to be kind of a light to other people and be, and, and I really take the time to talk to people in my DMs. I'm not just, you know, I don't just... Mm-hmm heart the message you send me. I like to really have a conversation or like if they have any advice and if it's too scientific because I was not part of the scientific part of my journey at all. My mom was because she's very, very much that doctor mind, you know, a doctorate degree. And so I, she'll help me. She'll say, oh, if they have a specific question like this, like I'll go to her and she'll, she will literally write the message back <laughs> on my behalf if they're having questions about like stem cells and, and blood counts and things that I have no idea about. But um, on a personal level, I'll connect with anyone who reaches out to me. And I do find that it is, it does give, just me speaking to my little bit of following that I have gives people the chance to speak to their own experience. And mm. I definitely find the the warmest message I got was that message of saying like, yes, we're both mm. gay cancer <laughs> fighters, you know? And even though, you know, I don't love the can- cancer fighter term, it's grown on me a little bit. And I do feel much tougher now after, you know, going through this for over a year. So I don't mind that, especially when it's coming from a gay person who is battling the exact same disease that I have in a small little town and you know I might be the only person on in their entire realm who can relate just semi relate to what they're going to you know not even fully relate because I live in a great huge metropolis so 
So, Jared, you talk about now like this being stronger than, than you were before, which, I mean, I'm already just break, breaking that to a Britney Spears song right now, but... Um, <laughs> stronger than yesterday. <laughs> there we go. Thank you for the delivery on that. Um, so, like, my thought was, is though, is there something that you've learned going through the treatment process now um, you wish that would have helped you maybe when you were first diagnosed that maybe you, you weren't told or presented with that you would want to share with somebody else that's going through this? You know, it's funny. I actually, because in therapy, my therapist had me write a letter to my self before I was diagnosed. And so I actually did post it on, I, I read the letter on my Instagram, just hoping that it could resonate with people. And I can't remember exactly what I said specifically because it was a, about a month or two ago. But I do remember the one standout thing is if I could do it again, I would just not focus on the even the concept or even letting in the thought of death anywhere near the mm-hmm. the the process of of recovery and i know it's like so hard to do because you're literally given a, a diagnosis that's like oh people die from this disease mm-hmm. and it's so hard to separate the two but if i could go back that that would be my personal thing is I just wish I wasn't so obsessed with death for that first month and a half when I was diagnosed. I mean, every day the doctors came in and said, any questions? And I would say, am I going to die? I mean, it became a joke at a certain point because like a certain, sometimes I would be, you know, off my face on medication, like pain, pain medication. And I would still say, am I going to die today? You know, like just like joking at this point, like so, so desensitized (laughs) to it. But I wish in hindsight, I was like, I wish I didn't have that worry. Mm. I wish I wasn't worrying about that so much, letting it bother my sleep, let it bother, you know, let it bother so much of my time during that first month and a half after diagnosis because medicine is so evolved. And because the, because the power, there is a certain power of like positive thinking, obviously not to a full extent because I was fe- thinking very negative and still am in remission, but I, I do wish I would have had like a, po- a more positive outlook on it. And I know a lot of people have that and I just am not, I'm not wired that way. I am kind of a hypochondriac, worst case scenario. Like I mentioned, the fear, you know, anxiety riddled. And so I wish I would have not had that. And I just encourage anyone who's who's suffering or going through anything, whether it's a mental illness or a physical illness or a disease or anything like that, to not to not just jump to like worst case scenarios. Like you just cannot jump to that, to that road. And again, once again, it was my mom who would be like, we're not going there today. We're not thinking like when she would walk into my hospital room before COVID stuff and I would be just burst into tears and she, what's wrong. And it was always the same thing. And I was just like, I don't want to die. And it's, she's like, you're not going there today. We're not doing that. And Mm -hmm. I think it's just so important to hear that from someone who literally thought they were going to die for every day for 45 days. So don't just try not do whatever you do. Take an extra anti-anxiety medicine, you know, take whatever you have to take, but like, do not, do not succumb to that thought process. Wow. That's such helpful advice. I feel like all of us can benefit from, from that, no matter where we're at in life. Um, I, I, you know, I just, I'm just smiling, um, because I'm just, it's been so nice to spend this time with you and, 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 uh, anyone who has a chance, like Jared, there's a, you documented your, your journey. Um, and obviously you don't, you weren't every day, but, um, there's one point where you, I, there's this, this video in your story where you're in your gown and you're just doing like runway down the hospital, um, uh, hallway. And it just, it just, it just brings me so much joy seeing you in that moment. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us too. Um, it's, it's, it's still, that, that's still out there. So that's my understanding. So if anyone wants to, you know, follow your journey, um, that's on Instagram. 
you know, it's like back to what you said though, it's like what we focus on sometimes grows. So, but I will say like, I do know that, you know, it's been important for me, like when I, when I've been sick or when I've had a family member who's had cancer to, to have that person who is, even if you, you know, obviously your mom was emotionally attached, attached to you because you are her child. Um, that only, and I'm not, a, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak to that with that's like, like to, to be able to have a child who, who has cancer, but to be able to have someone else with you when you're going through that sort of a search situation, who can listen to the doctors, who can be there to, to take the information. Because I know sometimes I'm like a deer in headlights when I get bad information. And when the doctor asks me to even like recount like what happened, what's wrong, like even like what, 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 what were the symptoms? I, sometimes I just try to freeze. So just like really can't speak enough to the importance of anyone, you know, when you're going through anything like that, having, whether it's a mom or an advocate or a friend um, to be there, you know, through that. To take Use those tools, take advantage of that, right? You know? Absolutely. And also the power of pop music in your life, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh, I talk about that all the time. I literally, like one of my, I, I list things like that. What, what got you through? What got you through? People ask me that all the time. And I literally say pop music. Right. And, and so whatever that is for you, surround yourself with that, you know, whether it's Chris, yeah, whatever Oak. your version of pop music is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jared, it has been such a joy to be able to spend uh, this afternoon with you. And we really are just so grateful for the advocacy work you do for your transparency and your authenticity and um, just making the world a beautiful place to be in with your presence. Thank you so much. This has been so awesome to talk to you guys as well. I'm so glad we connected. We hope you enjoyed getting to know Jared and were inspired by his willingness to adapt, change, grow, and be of service to others. To find out how you can offer hope to someone battling cancer, visit Jared's profile on our website. There, you can find links to some of the resources mentioned today and sign up to join the Be The Match registry. You can be someone's cure and literally help save a life. Together, we can help beat cancer. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store. Thanks again for listening, and remember to be true, be you, and to talk out loud.